Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Hope you had a good weekend and hope you're able to stay warm. That's a, a tough job for much of the country. A lot of weather to talk about again uh, today, and DTN meteorologist Bryce Anderson will join us to give us an update. When will we uh, start climbing out of this uh, winter situation and think more about spring but we have a lot of cold weather some severe weather in parts of the country as well so we'll go over all that weather information a little bit later with dtm meteorologist bryce anderson also coming up today we're going to talk about uh cell cultured meat fake meat imitation meat lab meat whatever you choose to call it danielle beck with the national cattlemen's beef association will be joining us in a bit and also we'll be talking about another attempt to get Tax extenders passed. We'll be talking with the National Biodiesel Board about that a little bit later on in the program. So lots to cover as we kick things off here on this Monday, this first full week of March. Well, let's get caught up on the news. Joining us now is Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, when I last saw and talked to you, we were nice and warm in Orlando. It was delightful (laughs) to be in that Florida weather, wasn't it? Uh, it sure what a was. nice break from especially the rest of the country and our hearts of course go out to all those that were hurt in the tornadoes overnight uh, terrible storms throughout the southeast and, and many dead i understand yes uh, terrible situation there and a lot of folks battling the cold uh, livestock producers a lot of challenges there and uh, talked with a beef producer here in illinois this morning uh, they'd been out checking uh, for calves and they were rele- relieved uh, uh None last night, so it was a a good night not to have that situation with below zero temperatures here in Illinois. Well, Sarah, I thought it was an interesting meeting. Big crowd uh, at Commodity Classic last week in Orlando. What was your takeaway from uh, what you saw and heard while we were at Classic last week? Well, you're right. It was a big crowd. Over 9,000 registered, and I think 4,400 of those were actually farmers And the thing that was most interesting to me, Mike, is how big of a difference it was from one year ago. As you remember, when Sonny Perdue took this stage last year, uh, there were a lot of corn farmers who were probably going to lift up a pitchfork if they had one in their hand and uh, demonstrate about their concerns of how he was dealing with the ethanol question. But this year, it was all a very warm reception. The secretary was very relaxed. He was very confident about E15 by June 1, and uh, even though he'd had some mixed messages perhaps the week before because of some disconnect between who was then acting EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler and now the administrator confirmed Andrew Wheeler, uh, they're in lockstep that June 1, they'll be able to get that out the door. Corn growers were happy. Other commodity groups were, uh, I think, cautiously optimistic along with the secretary that we're making progress on china that there needs to be a heavy lift but they want to get usmca passed and so they're looking for better times ahead thought it was also interesting kind of a show of force uh, they had the usda key usda personnel on hand from uh, richard fordyce head of uh, fsa martin barbary uh, uh, risk management agency and you had others there talking about farm bill implementation that was obviously a, a big priority and they wanted to get that message out 
Absolutely. And then Ted McKinney came as well, the Undersecretary mm-hmm. for Trade. You know, they really want to show that they are on the farmer's side. And it's, it's a little different. When I was at Outlook Conference the week prior, uh, there were farmers who were telling me they'd really had enough of this happy talk from USDA <laughs> and that they weren't able to pay some of the bills with uh, the rhetoric that they were receiving. But at Classic, I really didn't hear that strong of an undercurrent. I heard folks saying, okay, we're going to work to get these things done. The Farm Bill is providing us with some of that much-needed certainty, and they want to do everything they can to work with the administration. So I, I really didn't pick up a lot of detrimental criticism at this meeting. Perhaps you did, but uh, not the folks I was talking to. No, I think there's optimism that these things are going to get resolved. Now, if if they don't, I would say we'll have a different tone at next year's Classic. Well, not only next year, but, you know, we're really heating up on the presidential elections. And so you've got the president wanting to keep his rural base happy. And if he can't get some of these trade deals done by this summer, then I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of folks who are saying, you know, we've really had enough of this. And... Yeah, I think that's right. There's a lot on the line here, and how far can uh, a farmer's patience be stretched, uh, and we will see. Hopefully, uh, we'll see some results of these issues uh, coming very, very soon. We're talking with Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, we're getting close to all the Ag Day activities, and I know you have some special activities planned once again this year in our nation's capital. We certainly do. When we uh, are very supportive of National Ag Day, we're looking forward to another presidential proclamation. Uh, Our event is on March 18th at the National Press Club, and we've got a full day of speakers, including USDA's chief economist, to give us the latest net farm income numbers and an update uh, sense outlook on kind of what he's seeing uh, on the trade front. We've got a lot of folks who are going to be talking about cell-based meat. It sounds like you're going to have some discussions on that later. And uh, I think this is something, whether it's plant-based or cell-based, Mike, your listeners really need to be up to speed on this because it has dramatic implications on not only what's going to happen to the livestock and poultry sector, but the folks who feed the livestock and poultry sector if we start to see some big changes there. So uh, it's really a great chance to get updated on farm and future uh, trends going out to 2040. I think it's this is going to be a fascinating case to watch here, how the public receives cell-based uh, product. Because of all the skepticism around GMOs, will their attitude be different towards this technology? I think it's going to be interesting to see. I do, too. I mean, you've got to wonder, if you don't want to eat a GMO, what makes you think you want to eat something that was made in a petri dish but you know i've I've tasted some of this stuff and you really can't tell the difference at least on the eggs that i've I've eaten uh in in food so you know at what point do you say okay there's a convenience factor and then of course these companies that are behind a lot of this of course some of them are traditional ones you got tyson you got cargill you got smithfield they're investing in these what are they seeing that the rest of us aren't in terms of the need to invest in those products. So it's really going to be a fascinating discussion at our March 18th event. Yes, it is. And real quick, we're hearing maybe March 27th or somewhere in that neighborhood, we might actually get an announcement on China. Well, that's what we're hearing, too, in terms of a potential meeting at Mar-a-Lago between President Xi and 
President Trump. And if that happens, I think a lot of folks are have high expectations that there'll be a deal. Of course, we've got to watch because the president went to North Korea and made it very clear he's going to walk if there isn't a deal. Uh, but this one's got a lot of high stakes, and uh, we are overly optimistic at this point that maybe they'll get something done. All right, Sarah, as always, good to talk with you. Good to see you last week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. Sarah Wyatt, editor, president, AgriPulse Communications. Lots of weather to talk about next with DTN meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Stay with us on AOA Adams on Agriculture. We're live on the red carpet, waiting for the next generation Creden soybean. There he is. Oh, Ed, look, it's Creden's Liberty Link GT27. I know, Edna. He's got elite genetics. You gotta love his four bushel per acre yield advantage. And he's both Liberty and glyphosate herbicide tolerant. Definitely the year's hottest performer. Ask your Credenz retailer about the new Credenz Liberty Link GT27 soybeans. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, on Friday, when in Orlando at Commodity Classic, we talked with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. We were talking about the, the winter weather for this weekend, which indeed uh, much of the country dealing with. What we did not talk about and kind of caught us uh, by... Uh, by surprise, I guess it did a lot of people, the terrible tornadoes and storms in Alabama. Bryce joins us now. Bryce, was this just totally unexpected? It would not have been, Mike, uh, because the uh, the strength, the intensity of that cold wave that has uh, now sprawled across uh, much of the country, particularly east of the Rockies at this point, uh, was, uh, was going into a, a real notable transition boundary uh, between this uh, this very cold air mass and then uh, in the southeastern U.S., uh, it uh, actually has been very warm for the season, and so that, uh, that conflict is going to lead to a tremendous convection, cloud buildup, storm formation, and uh, the, the prospect of severe weather. It's not out of the question that severe weather occurs in the southeast uh, during the winter and spring months because of that uh, air mass uh, collision, so to speak. But uh, it was a, a real notable outbreak. Uh, 39 tornado reports in Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. And uh, there were uh, 74 uh, wind reports and 16 hail reports from uh, the past weekend, particularly uh, Saturday night, the second, and then through Sunday, uh, March third, and and uh, the the uh, incident of that was uh, was uh, certainly uh, you know real harsh uh, in South Georgia, southeastern Alabama, the Florida Panhandle, and then western South Carolina. Yeah, our thoughts and prayers with folks in that area. Uh, what about the winter storm, uh, Bryce, that we've been talking about? Uh, Wow, got cold. And what about the snow amounts? Were they as much as expected? The uh, the snowfall was pretty much uh, on par as expected. Uh, you know, with uh, the the snowfall in that uh, two to five inch category, uh, the the feature to me that is uh, is quite dramatic uh, for today is uh, just how how the uh, cold air has has truly um, you know 
kind of elbowed its way all the way into the southern plains. I mean, earlier this morning there were wind chill warnings in effect uh, clear into the Texas pan, uh, not quite the Texas panhandle, but uh, into western Kansas. And then uh, there were extreme cold warnings uh, in south Texas and then the Delta and in the deep south in Alabama. So the state of Alabama, you know, had the had the tornado occurrences over the weekend, and now uh, the state is faced with a very cold pattern. So uh, that uh, has been very impressive to me. And windchill advisories have uh, been posted as far south as the uh, Ozarks in northwestern Arkansas. Um, I talked with a, uh, a fellow from Georgia uh, on the shuttle bus last week going to the convention. Uh, let's see, this was on Friday, and he was concerned about uh, possible freeze damage to the peach groves in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And we know last year that the blueberry crop in Georgia was damaged quite badly by cold weather, and now this year the peach crop may be in some jeopardy because of uh, this very cold pattern that we've got going on. Yeah, lots of weather concerns. Well, what about this week ahead? It is not looking uh, real good for getting out of it, Mike. When I did my video uh, a little bit ago, uh, for for uh, our DTN market weather outlook, I was uh, looking at the uh, seven-day high temperature forecast chart, and there's only uh, a couple areas of the country where you're going to see temperatures that are seasonal to above normal. Uh, the Four Corners area, Arizona and New Mexico, and then in uh, parts of the Carolinas, Georgia and Florida, uh, there will be some seasonal to above normal uh, readings. But otherwise, uh, we're looking at uh, below to much below normal values uh, during this week. And then in the the real core of that cold air over the uh, western plains and into the uh, northwestern plains, uh, we're going to see those temperatures in that range of about 10 to 15 degrees on average below normal during this week. And so it still is very hard to uh, think about Uh, any sort of reprieve for at least another, I would say, 10 days anyway uh, until we get through the middle part of March. It might be St. Patrick's Day before we really start showing any kind of uh, of break out of this pattern for for much of the country. We're talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, you and I have been talking for some time now about the extremely wet conditions in many parts of the country. Uh, I know you talked with some folks about that at Commodity Classic. Uh, did, uh, is that being raised as a real concern by a lot of farmers and their prospects of uh, uh, concerns about when they'll be able to get to the fields this spring? Yes, it is. And uh, that, w- that was uh, the one thing that, that was uh, kind of the first thing that, that I talked about, you know, when I ran into growers at the convention last week, uh, was about the the potential for uh, the the uh, springtime to be too wet and uh, a real a real uh, a a real uh, flooding problem uh, to be um, something to deal with during the spring. And it really doesn't matter, Mike, if I'm talking with um, growers from the western corn belt or from the eastern corn belt because for different reasons uh, a lot of people are concerned about it. You get in the eastern belt, uh, very heavy rain from last uh, fall uh, was added to in in some occurrences uh, with rainfall during the winter because of a very warm pattern up until the end of January into February. And so the soil is saturated there, and then there's a prospect of at least typical spring rains to continue. And then in the western belt, 
this uh, this uh, snowy pattern that we got ourselves uh, going into during February has uh, really piled up, and uh, there's uh, plenty of uh, soil moisture from the uh, heavy rainfall last uh, fall. So you've got a uh, saturated soil profile. When the snow melts, there's really nowhere for it to go. And uh, the Mississippi and the Missouri basins, the Ohio, uh, they're all uh, likely to uh, have some flooding going on. And uh, that's, the, that's the real uh, kind of uh, number one or at least 1A uh, concern that uh, I ran into last week when I was in Orlando. Mm-hmm. All right, take us around the globe. But what is uh, what's the weather like in some key areas uh, that we keep an eye on? South America, Australia, uh, some of those areas. Well, South America is uh, still looking pretty decent on showers for this week. Uh, Brazil's uh, rainfall pattern has been uh, pretty good for its uh, safrinha corn crop that uh, I think everybody is pretty well aware of at this point, and they will have some more rain this week, anywhere from two to four inches. Argentina's northern and central crop areas are going to also have a pretty active pattern, and and temperatures in South America do not look like they're going to be real stressful at all over the next uh, week or so. You know, kind of seasonal, maybe about uh, three to five degrees above normal, and that's that's certainly uh, manageable. Um, in uh, Australia, that's the one part of the world that uh, I think is a, a real dry uh, problem area, and that is uh, especially true in eastern Australia because the uh, provinces or the states of Queensland and New South Wales uh, have been very dry. They really haven't uh, gotten very much uh, wintertime moisture. Um, the, uh, the precip that occurred uh, you know, was uh, extremely heavy here a couple weeks ago in northern Queensland, but it uh, didn't really uh, get into the major crop areas of uh, southern Queensland and New South Wales. And so there's a big question about what their uh, wheat crop is going to have for moisture when it's planted. And then over in Europe, there's uh, sort of a back-and-forth unsettled uh, pattern right now going on, which should lead to a few shots of uh, moisture and um, some recovery from the, uh, the very dry year that they had last year during the summer and then on into the fall season. Uh, Ukraine and Russia have good, so- have, uh, good snow cover, so uh, right now they're not being looked at as being a, you know, in a real problem for this uh, late winter, early spring uh, right now. All right, Bryce. Well, the time changes next weekend, so that'll make us uh, at least uh, think we're getting closer to spring, and hopefully the the weather will start to to match up with that as well. I tell you, the comment I heard from a lot of people getting off the plane when when we got back from Orlando, a lot of people saying, back to reality. Boy, it it hit you right in the face when you got off that plane. It it sure did, and, and, uh, yeah, I walked back to uh, 10 degrees and, and snow uh, when I was going to the parking lot, and I know that I shared that with a lot of people. All of a sudden, that humi- that little bit of humidity we were dealing with in Orlando uh, seemed uh, pretty good, didn't it? I'd take oh, it back, wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. I, I missed that. I won't deny it. All right. Good to talk with you, Bryce. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. Take care. DTN Meteorologist Bryce Anderson. I tell you, wherever Bryce goes, um, farmers want to talk with him about the weather and uh, they don't always don't always like what they're hearing as we just got in that forecast of more winter ahead and the concerns about uh, flooding but uh, they want to know his opinion and uh, he is uh, uh, a real leader in uh, that that industry and uh, 
well-respected. Well, sell meat may be coming to you sooner than you think. What will the public reaction be? What rules will they have to follow? We'll talk about that next with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association here on AOA. Powerful, effective, proven, tough, consistent, reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds. All backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of conversation over cell-based meat or lab meat, fake meat, imitation meat, whatever you may choose to call it. Uh, but it is there is a lot of conversation. Secretary Purdue talking about it as well. Uh, where are we at on this as far as product development, and uh, more importantly, right now the the rules that will um, you know give oversight to how what they have to go by as far as uh, in comparison to uh, uh, traditional products. Let's talk about that with Danielle Beck. Director of Government Affairs with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Danielle, you've uh, kept us up to date on this issue. What's the latest? Hey, Mike, how are you? Uh, you know, good. we keep hearing uh, reports in the press uh, from various sources. Commissioner Gottlieb himself, Secretary Purdue, have both stated, uh, you know, the formal agreement between both agencies that will govern the oversight of lab-grown meat products uh, should be out any day now. Uh, and we're hearing ourselves from folks uh, in the agencies that, that that is accurate, and so we should expect uh, more details to come, uh, you know, any time in the next couple of weeks. So... How do you feel about it? You've been involved in this process, and you've said all along what you're, you're looking for a level playing field here, that uh, these new products will have to follow the same rules and guidelines as traditional products. Uh, so are you optimistic that we're on that, on that path? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we are still very optimistic because, you know, ultimately the formal agreement between both agencies should be out any day now, uh, but we know that both agencies have a lot more work to do before these products can come to the market, and they are, in, you know, intent upon doing their due diligence, particularly those at USDA. Uh, the formal agreement is really just sort of coloring in the lines of what was announced in November, uh, but there are still more questions that need to be answered. And USDA in particular, in recent conversations we've had, we know that they are intent upon finding those answers uh, and, and asking more questions before these products do ultimately make it to market. Well, these are these products and this technology really opening up the door to a lot of questions. Uh, you know, the name, what they'll be called. When we were starting to hear about clean meat or clean products, that was giving a negative connotation to uh, to other products. Uh, and even some of these companies, I, I've read where some of their uh, leaders have said that was a poor choice of words and that they were looking to go a different direction. So there's a lot in a name, isn't there? Absolutely. Words have meaning, uh, and it's critically important that you know, when these products do make it to market, they are labeled with enough information to provide consumers with, uh, you know, the data on hand so that they can make informed purchasing decisions in the grocery store. 
How far away, I, I know this isn't your business, you, but uh, do you think we're close to them being in the uh, grocery store uh, available to consumers? You know, I think we're at least a couple of years out. Some companies are moving faster than others, but the sense that I get is these companies, you know, they recognize that this is a brand new technology, and if anything goes awry, God forbid, you know, a consumer gets sick from something that, you know, rushed to the market before they were ready, uh, that's bad for the technology and the industry as a whole. And so it sounds like they're really intent upon doing their due diligence as well. And, you know, that's something that we can all feel good about. This puts... Your industry, uh, the beef industry, I think in a in a in an awkward position because uh, you're calling for fairness and you know level playing field. Some are going to look upon that as you're trying to avoid competition and try to discourage competition. So uh, it looks like uh, you're in a position where some are always going to criticize you or or kind of be skeptical of you. There will always be critics, but I, I think. What we are calling for is this fair, even playing field. We're not afraid of competition, but ultimately, you know, if you're going to be competing for our market share and directly against our own products, you need to be held to the same set of rules and standards. Uh, you know, if you want to call yourselves meat or even beef, you know, our producers look at that as sort of riding off of our coattails. Uh, you know, beef producers here in the U.S., they work hard each and every day to work, produce a safe, affordable, nutritious protein. They're proud of their legacy and what the word beef really stands for. Uh, if you want to compete directly against us, that's fine. But, you know, we believe that USDA should consider creating a new standard of identity so that these products can market themselves in a, a way that appropriately differentiates, uh, you know, products in the marketplace. How do you see this joint oversight working? Well, we know that uh, FDA will oversee the collection of cells, the cell banks, the cell harvesting. USDA is going to have the day-to-day production and the labeling. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with both agencies moving forward, whether you know they choose to issue guidance, have a proposed rulemaking, uh, if one goes one way and the other goes the other. Um, but I, you know, I think ultimately there's a lot more work that both agencies will need to do. Uh, before these products can make it to the market. We're talking with Danielle Beck, Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Well, Secretary Verdue has been talking a lot about this. In fact, last week at Commodity Classic, he brought this up again, talking about uh, how critical he is of this, uh, what he calls this fear your food movement. And uh, he is trying to stress, uh, you know, kind of a uh, an open table here to bring all the all this technology to play and uh, for consumers to be confident in it without uh, someone trying to, uh, you know, use fear marketing and things like that. It is going to be fascinating. I mentioned this earlier in the program. Danielle, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what uh, consumer reaction is going to be given all the questions and concerns and criticisms of GMOs. Are they now going to embrace this technology? It is going to be really interesting to see. And, you know, ultimately it's up to the consumer to decide the success of these products. You know, I think we've seen with GMOs that consumers sometimes like to pick and choose their science. But, you know, I think that consumers ultimately can put a lot of faith and trust uh, in USDA in particular that they've done their due diligence, that they, you know, they make sure that everything is safe before a product enters the market. And, you know, FDA does as well. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately as producers who have had a, a long-standing history of embracing innovation when it comes to food production. Uh, you know, we're, we're happy to see that dialogue, uh, you know, happen and the conversation sort of shift towards you can trust your food, you can trust innovation, because ultimately the agencies are willing to do the hard work on the front end to ensure consumers are protected.
Well, here again, it puts the beef industry in an interesting situation. You you do support that you know the uh, the safe technology and the and the the uh, advances that are made there, but at the same time, I some would say, well, hey, you're uh, you're kind of boosting your what what looks to be your your future competitor, uh, but uh, you're willing to do that, right, for the uh, the umbrella of uh, let's look at everything on a, a level basis and the same standards. Absolutely, you know, all all producers deserve to be treated. Uh, fairly, and ultimately it's making sure that we all are treated the same. Uh, you know, any new innovative technology, it goes through a rigorous safety process pre-market, uh, and that's, you know, ultimately with the goal of ensuring consumer safety. Uh, our own beef producers have complied with a, a set of stringent regulations for decades now, and that's because they recognize the importance of consumer safety. You don't hear them griping about it because they know that consumers need to be first. Uh, and ultimately, we just expect that before these products enter the market, they have to do the same. Uh, and so really, we do. We think it's all in the name of fairness. Does the fact that this isn't just some um, unknown uh, small scientific groups pushing this, uh, something coming out of just a, a lab, but actually some big-name food companies are, are talking about being behind this and embracing it as well. Does that, uh, does that speed things up? Does that change public perception? How do you view that? Well, you know, I think it's hard to say how it impacts public perception because I think a lot of food or, you know, consumers are probably pretty disconnected with where their food comes from. Um, when they go to buy meat in the grocery store, they're not saying, oh, you know, I want Cargill meat over Tyson meat. Uh, they're, they're buying a product because of the, the grade of the meat, the quality of it, um, the cut or the price point. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure that the large company investments have too much of an impact right now. And, you know, where these products have yet to enter the market, they have yet to develop, you know, full comprehensive marketing schemes. They really haven't made any determinations on nomenclature. You know, I don't, I don't know that it really has an influence right now, but down the road it, it certainly could, uh, and that's something that we're paying attention to. So how do you see this proceeding, and do you get any more input? Uh, who do you talk with on Capitol Hill uh, to represent beef interest in, in the, on this issue? Well, uh, just last week, uh, former Chairman uh, Adderholt, who is n now sits on the Agriculture Appropriations Committee in a somewhat different position, uh, he raised this with Commissioner Gottlieb uh, when he testified before the Appropriations Subcommittee on Thursday, I believe. Uh, you know, the the regular allies that we've had who have engaged on this previously, you know, we expect to continue engaging, and there may be some new uh, new faces we see weighing in because there this is an issue where there's a lot of interest. Uh, but, you know, we believe moving forward that it's probably likely uh, there'll be additional conversations, additional opportunities for public and stakeholder input, uh, particularly when it comes to the nomenclature side of things. And so, you know, we're encouraging all of our members and producers to stay tuned and, and at the ready because we may ask for, uh, you know, we may put out a call to action to have producers weigh in moving forward. But at this point in time, we're sort of just waiting to see what happens until this, uh, this formal agreement between the agencies is finalized. Does the so-called uh, Green New Deal and some of the uh, proposals mentioned in that when it comes to uh, livestock. Uh, are you watching that and what the momentum that could have uh, in, uh, in Congress as well towards uh, something like this? We are absolutely uh, paying attention to that, but 
you know, again, I think the conversation around sustainability really has no business influencing the way food products are regulated. You know, when it comes to lab-grown fake meat, it's about safety and it's about appropriate nomenclature to create a fair, even playing field. You know, the sustainability of these products has yet to be verified or vetted because they're not produced at a commercial scale. And so, you know, right now a lot of it's just hearsay, and we hope that these issues will be treated separately. Very good. Danielle, thanks for keeping us up to date, and we'll stay in touch on this. Thank you. Of course, thanks. Take care. Danielle Beck, Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That's going to be a story to watch, uh, how this uh, develops, uh, uh, how the rules are set for it, and uh, what public uh, reaction is going to be to these new products, these cell-based products, uh, given the criticism and skepticism many have had over GMOs. Will they uh, be more open and uh, embrace this technology or not? We we shall see. Well, another uh, effort to get tax extenders uh, passed, and that would mean, uh, if so, it could be good news for the biodiesel industry. What about this latest effort? We'll talk with the National Biodiesel Board coming up next here on AOA. We're live on the red carpet, waiting for the next generation Credence soybean. There he is. Oh, Ed, look, it's Credence Liberty Link GT27. I know, Adna. He's got elite genetics. You gotta love his four bushel per acre yield advantage. And he's both Liberty and glyphosate herbicide tolerant. Definitely the year's hottest performer. Ask your Credence retailer about the new Credence Liberty Link GT27 soybeans. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Another effort underway led by Senator Grassley and others to get a tax extenders package passed. Let's talk about it now with the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen. Donnell, thank you for joining us. Well, another chance, another vehicle has popped up. Uh, Tell us about it. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Uh, well, potentially, you know, Senator Grassley has always been our biggest champion of renewable fuels and biodiesel, of course, and uh, he and uh, his counterpart on the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Wyden, uh, dropped a bill last week to extend the biodiesel tax credit as well as all of the tax extenders uh, for a two-year, t- one-year back and one-year forward time frame. So how do you feel about that? It's it's certainly not the seven years uh, that you were hoping for uh, at the end of last year, but uh, uh, would this at least, I mean, it's obviously better than not having it all, uh, but how do you feel about it? Well, it's it's positive, right? We, we need Congress to be talking about this issue. You know, our biodiesel producers are are struggling at this point with this tax credit being gone for the longest period of time that it's ever been absent. Uh, we're getting into our 15th month now uh, without the tax credit. And the, the industry has been used to having it so all the way down through the supply chain. So uh, our biodiesel producers are uh, kind of forced into pricing that tax credit into the fuel they've been selling, and that's been occurring since January 1st of 2018. So definitely uh, something needs to happen sooner rather than later, and this, this hopefully gets the dialogue going. Introducing legislation and passing legislation, two different things. Uh, uh, how do you see this, uh, the road ahead for this? Well, so, you know, revenue bills uh, must originate in the House, and so this is a Senate bill. 
so this is more than anything is a very strong signal from the Senate, specifically from the leadership of the Senate Finance Committee, so the money side of the Senate, uh, saying, hey, House, you know, we're, we're interested in this. We want to see something happen, uh, something along these lines. Uh, let's sit down and figure it out sooner rather than later. So it's a very strong signal from our uh, champions that uh, House, you know, please take this issue up sooner rather than later, and let's see if we can't settle this for the biodiesel industry. Do you have champions in the House to carry it? Well, we do. You know, biodiesels always enjoyed uh, being a very bipartisan issue. And so, uh, you know, right last fall when we thought we were in the final uh, opportunity with the last Congress to push a, a tax credit across the finish line, we had a letter in the House that had over 40 House members, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, encouraging their leadership to move a uh, tax credit forward for the biodiesel industry. And so we have a number of supporters and champions in the House. It's just a matter of getting it uh, getting it to the right committee, the, this being the Ways and Means Committee, uh, and getting them to uh, allow it to get all the way to the House floor. Will this be a standalone bill, or do you see it getting attached to something else? Well, again, you know, it's got to be a, uh, it's a, as a revenue bill, it's got to originate in the House. So I don't, I wouldn't guess that the final version of this would look like this bill necessarily. Uh, that would be likely, uh, because there's just so little activity going on right now in Congress, that this, if this is an opportunity to move this forward, uh, I'm sure there will be other provisions that would likely find their way onto it as well. But again, the, for us, the big, the big talking point is uh, they are talking about it. Uh, the leaderships are pushing leaderships. To, uh, to move these uh, move something like this forward, and that's good and positive news for the biodiesel industry. So it gives you hope. It gives you another chance. Uh, you've been so close before to see it not come through. I know that uh, you don't want to get too far out with your optimism, but at least it does give you the chance, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, you can't you can't win the game if you're not playing. And at this point, uh, this gets us into the game and into the conversation right now. And again, the, it's, it's a very urgent matter for our industry, and so we, we need uh, the House to understand that action on this is needed now and not uh, you know, several months from now. We're talking with the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen. Donnell, your, your thoughts, reaction to the uh, confirmation of Andrew Wheeler to be EPA Administrator? Well, we're looking forward to uh, working with Administrator Wheeler. You know, he's been acting administrator for uh, eight or nine months already, and we've uh, we've enjoyed a good opportunity to kind of reestablish some dialogue with that agency that we had kind of lost by, uh, under his predecessor. Um, and so, again, we're seeing acts of transparency regarding everything from, you know, RVO volumes in future years to small refinery exemptions and RINs. And so uh, we're, we're surprised and, and excited at what we're seeing. Uh, I shouldn't say surprised. We're excited at what we're seeing. That's what we would expect of an agency uh, like this. And so we're pleased uh, to have that kind of opportunity to have that dialogue going on with that agency. They're, they're critical to our future uh, and the future of growth in renewable fuels. But as you have pointed out to us in the past, those, those small refinery exemptions have really hurt the biodiesel industry. Those requests are coming in again. Do you have any feel for how they're going to handle them? Well, not directly. I mean, again, we know because there's a little more transparency, we know there's a good number of the small refinery exemptions have been received for 2018. And so, um, you know, I know that Administrator Wheeler understands very clearly what that means to our industry as well as the ethanol industry. Um, there's uh, 
uh, been some great dialogue between some of the Senate leadership and the House leadership with him to help that understanding come along. And uh, at the end of the day, we'll just have to see. Obviously, those SREs are something that um, are allowed by the law. And so it's not that he's doing anything wrong. It's just uh, we, we have a different view of how those should be implemented. Your industry has uh, come up to a lot of crossroads over the years, but I would say you're definitely at one right now, wouldn't you? Well, definitely. And, you know, in, in the, we always have to keep in mind as we look at some of the challenges that we face, because we always face these challenges. The growth of this industry, the resiliency of this industry, the passion of this industry is what drives it. Uh, it wasn't that many years ago, really, that we were a 25 million gallon a year industry, and we're now approaching 3 billion gallons. And there's still a lot of reason to believe that there's a lot of growth potential uh, to go well beyond those kind of numbers. So in the scheme of things, we have to be excited and proud about where we're at and just continue to dig down and work hard to continue to grow the industry in the way that we know we can. Yeah, you would not have seen that growth without the commitment of a lot of people really passionate about the industry. Uh, you just need some uh, some assistance here, a couple of these issues to, to get uh, favorable decisions for you to really help push it forward. As always, Donnell, thank you so much for the update, and we'll talk again soon. Take care. All right. Thank you, Michael. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. All right, so there's lots going on with trade. Possible deal coming up maybe later this month with China. Push for USMCA. Talks uh, look like they're going to get underway with Japan. We'll focus a lot more on trade again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hope you'll join us.